Today on Hearing is Believing. Remember this, this is what gives me comfort, and hopefully it'll give you comfort too. This same Paul that lays out this list of qualifications is the same Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15 that calls himself the chief of sinners. Connecting contemporary culture to the timeless truths of God's Word, this is Hearing is Believing. And if you're paying attention to the headlines, headline after headline, would have us believe that the uh, will convince us, rather, that the church all over the world is in crisis. And if we hear that, that the church is in crisis or there is a crisis in the church, that headline should really concern us. It should shake us to our core. And think about the, what we mean. The crisis in the church doesn't mean a waning influence or a closed building or a time of talking about days gone by, like we around here talk about the days when Kessler's was in town. How many of you remember Kessler's? Anyone? Good. I remember Kessler's. Bumped my head one time in Kessler's. But anyway, that's another story for another day. Actually, Mom, there was a globe at the bottom of Kessler's that I wanted and I never got. But anyway, that's another story for another day, too. But the crisis in the church doesn't mean that we're talking about a waning influence or a closed building or talking about days gone by. The crisis in the church means that the beautiful bride of Christ has a crisis. The crisis of the church is a leadership issue. And listen closely. The leadership issue becomes a followership issue. Leaders of the church, listen to this statement closely. Leaders of the church are leaders who follow the leader. You say, well, who on earth is the leader? Jesus Christ is the leader. How often we neglect in the way we do our business that our business is following Jesus Christ. William Sangster, the early 20th century English Methodist preacher, listen to what he said. The church is painfully in need of leaders. I wait to hear a voice, and no voice comes. I would rather listen than speak, but there is no clarion voice to listen to. J. Oswald Smith, in his book that I commend to you, Spiritual Leadership, if you've not read it, get a copy. Read it at least once a year. J. Oswald Smith says this, If the world is to hear the church's voice today, leaders are needed, listen to this, who are authoritative, spiritual, and sacrificial. Authoritative, spiritual, and sacrificial. Authoritative because people desire reliable leaders who know where they're going and they're confident to get there. Spiritual, Because without a strong relationship to God, even the most attractive and competent person cannot lead people to God. Sacrificial. Because this trait follows the model of Jesus, who gave himself for the whole world, and who calls us to follow in his steps. 
Oswald Smith continues, he says, Churches grow in every way when they are guided by strong spiritual leaders with the touch of the supernatural radiating in their service. The church sinks into confusion and malaise without such leadership. Today, those who preach, Sanders says, or Smith says, today those who preach without majesty and spiritual power are few, and the booming voice of the church has become a pathetic whisper. Leaders today, those who are truly spiritual, must take to heart their responsibility to pass on the torch to the younger people as a first line of duty. Spiritual leaders are those who know how to follow the leader. And the leader of the church is Christ. If the crisis of the church is a leadership crisis, then the leadership crisis is a followership crisis. And let me encourage you this way. Every Christian leader is a follower of Jesus. Every follower of Jesus is a Christian leader. Smith, in his book that I commended to you, he goes on and he tells a story of a large meeting of the mission leaders in China. The discussion turned to leadership and its qualifications. The debate was vigorous, but through it all, one person sat quietly listening. Then the chair asked if D.E. Host, general director of the China Inland Mission, had an opinion. The auditorium became still. With a twinkle in his eye, Host said in his high-pitched voice, it occurs to me that perhaps the best test of whether one is qualified to lead is to find out whether anyone is, lead, is following. And then Smith says this, we can lead others only as far along the road as we ourselves have traveled. Merely pointing the way is not enough. If we are not walking, then no one can be following. And we are not leading anyone. Now, one person who knew about leadership, I believe, was the Apostle Paul. And he writes this letter to Timothy in the spirit of exactly what Oswald Smith says, passing on the baton to the next generation. So I think that if we think about leadership, maybe your favorite leadership book is this or that. I think that if we are Christians and we're concerned about spiritual leadership, then we should definitely take into mind what the Apostle Paul says in Holy Scripture concerning leadership. And he wants to see this young protege that he is called Timothy, he wants to see him not end up like two guys that he mentions in the first chapter, Hymenaeus and Alexander. He says of them that they made shipwreck of their faith. And so he wants this young protege named Timothy to arrive safe to shore. And so the next principle of our uh, consideration this evening is simply this one. Follow the leader. Principle number six. If we're going to make it safe to shore, follow the leader. Godly Christian leadership is rare. It takes constant concern. And there are qualities that we're going to consider tonight that are going to describe a Christian leader. 
And it's those qualities that we turn our attention to tonight. So this is what I'd like to do. Usually when this text is taken, it's broken up. But I want to take all of chapter 3, at least the first portion of chapter 3, the first 13 verses together. And remember this. Remember the thesis of this entire section that we've been looking at since chapter 2 when he says, first of all then, the, uh, the thesis for this statement is chapter 3 and verse uh, 14 and 15. I hope to write to you. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so, in other words, he's saying that I'm writing these to you so that you can know how the church ought to behave. The church is the shining light of truth in the world. In other words, the church has the responsibility to bear a faithful witness of the Christ that. She serves. We serve society best by being unapologetically ourselves. And so what we want to do then is we want to conduct ourselves in a certain manner. We want to know what it means. How do we behave in the household of God? So listen to the Bible together. 1 Timothy chapter 3, we'll read the first 13 verses. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace into a snare of the devil. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless." Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderous, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Would you pray with me? Thank you for setting this beautiful paradigm of Christian leadership in the church before us. May we do well to turn our minds' attention, to turn our hearts' attention toward your word. Help us, we pray. In the name of the Son, and the power of the Spirit, to the glory of the Father. Amen. And if you think about it, if you've heard messages, and I've preached messages on this passage before, 
often when we think about this passage that's before us, we treat it with a division between pastors and deacons. And I think that there's a division between the two offices. I really believe that there is a difference between the two offices. Please don't misunderstand that. But there's a connection between the two. Because remember this, when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, and it was to be read to Timothy, and the intention was for Timothy to then read it to the church at Ephesus. It was to be read in one setting. It wasn't to be broken apart like we break it apart, but it was to be read once, and then comments throughout. And so the connection there is this word. I want you to point it out to you. Verse 8, deacons, likewise. Likewise, you see that? That's a connection between the two. So there is a difference between the two offices. But the divide is one of responsibility and calling. The responsibility and calling, the divide is the emphasis of teaching. The difference is not one who leads while the other doesn't. Listen carefully. Both lead by serving. One leads the other, but, one, but both lead. God has ordained two offices to lead the church, and the two offices to lead the church are pastors and deacons. Pastor and deacon. They both have different functions, but listen to this. Both of them serve to carry the gospel forward. Both of them serve the progress of the gospel. So each of the qualifications that's listed there, each of the qualifications uh, are qualifications that are necessary for every believer. Every believer should aspire, the word in uh, 1 Timothy 3, aspire to these qualifications to be true of them. But the pastors and the deacons, the leadership in the church, are those who excel in these qualities, those who are examples to the rest of the congregation. Now, some suggest that we put an org chart for the church, and I think that you can do that. As long as you put at the head of that org chart, Jesus. Have your organizational chart for the church. That's fine. But make sure that you put at its head, Jesus Christ. Now, let me ask you a question. For those of you who are already drawing the block, how on earth do you make a block big enough for Jesus? How do you fit him in a chart? This God who is preeminent, this God who is matchless and full of splendor, under Christ's preeminence, under that preeminent block, Every other block is insignificant. Think about the distance that you'd have to draw between the, the block of Jesus and his preeminence and us, pastor, deacon, whoever. Think about the distance that you'd have to draw under Christ's preeminent block with all the other blocks become insignificant. Both of those blocks together, the rest of the blocks, both of them are together who are to be about the business that concerns the head. And what is the business that concerns the head? What's the business of the church? What's our business? Two things. Simple. To know Him and to make Him known. To know Him and to make Him known. 
known. And those two positions are often pitted against each other because of the hierarchy. I believe that they're pitted against each other because the hierarchy that people want to draw in the church doesn't begin with Jesus. And a hierarchy, listen carefully, a hierarchy that is more concerned with building their own kingdom than from their positions and functions together building the kingdom of Christ Pastors take their side, deacons take their side, conflict is the result, and crisis is the perception. And I think that when Christ sees that, he simply looks at that moment. He sees the pastors trying to build their kingdom. He sees the deacons trying to build their kingdom. And he tells the same message to them as he would say to Joshua, when Joshua encountered, encountered the army, the, uh, the commander of the army of the Lord outside of Jericho. Remember what Joshua came up to him and said, whose side are you on? Are you for us? Or are you against us? And the angel of the Lord said, wrong question. I'm not here to pick sides. I'm here to take over. That's who Jesus is. His preeminence. So when he sees me and a pastor directing, uh, he sees pastors erecting a kingdom, he sees deacons erecting a kingdom, he simply brings his kingdom down and crushes those kingdoms and brings them to insignificance. That's what he does. Christ is the head. So there must be a more excellent way. And listen to me carefully. This is the point. The more excellent way is leadership that begins with following. Follow the leader. Who's the leader? The leader is Jesus. Leadership, if you're following Jesus, that it means that you're going to serve with humility. You know, it's interesting when you talk about servanthood and leadership, and you often think about hierarchies and those types of things. Leader, servanthood is not popular as it relates to leadership. Domineer, dominate, take over, move them out of the way. But the biblical paradigm is different. The biblical paradigm is different. Consider Moses, just for example. The preferred title for Moses isn't leader Moses, even though Moses was a great leader. But the Bible refers to Moses over and over again as Moses, the servant of the Lord. And in the same vein, the Son of Man, Jesus, He came to serve and not to be served. Now, if that title of servant is affixed to Moses and Jesus, and it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. And if, if that title of servant is affixed to Moses and Jesus, then we are not like them unless we're serving. Just recently, and this is so rich, just recently in my devotions, and I'm so glad that God speaks through His Word, 
just recently in my devotions, I, you know, uh, sometimes I read this one day and this another day, but in, in this moment in my devotions, it was God's providence. I came across John chapter 13. Listen to John 13. Before the, feast of the, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour to depart had come, out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Listen to this part. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel, tied it around his waist, Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And when I read that, shock came all over me, even though I read that passage a hundred times. But the way that John tells the story Knowing that all authority was his. Knowing that he had made the deaf hear, the blind see. He had raised the dead, walked on the water. Knowing all of those things, what does he do? He takes a towel. And he washes the feet of those who are there. And don't miss it. Even his enemy, Judas who was going to betray If Jesus can wash the feet of Judas, I can wash anybody's feet. What a paradigm for leadership. Christ came to the world not to serve, not to be served, but to serve. He came to the world to serve. This God condescended to become a man. The incarnation. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. But what kind of man did He become? A man who would take up a towel and wash feet. Condescend even lower. What did John see when he saw the glory of God? And he tells the glory of God. He saw God washing feet. Remember this, beloved. You and I, as followers of Jesus Christ, we cannot but see God except through a cross. We do not know God except from a cross. Leaders are followers. The leader is Jesus. We follow him. I remember in college, I was at a conference. Tim Elmore, 
Some of you know him, some of you might not, but he said at a conference, a follower of God will eventually become a leader of people. A follower of God will eventually become a leader of people. Actually, now thinking back, I think he said inevitably. That sounds better than eventually. A follower of God will inevitably become a leader of people. Inevitably become a leader of people. Following God is the overarching requirement for faithfully leading people spiritually. And listen, our business as believers is a people business. People are not dispensable. People are indispensable. That's why Jesus, knowing that Satan had entered, knowing that he was the son of perdition, still displayed his love towards him, Judas. So we come to consider these qualities this evening and the emphasis that I really want to betray instead of going over all of the qualities before you, I I want to just focus on this fact. The emphasis of the text, listen, the emphasis of the text in in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 13, listen, the emphasis of the text is one of being overdoing. Being overdoing. Now, it's not my intention, and I think that I would be doing an injustice to the text if I were to collapse the office of elder and deacon into one another, the office of pastor and deacon into one another. That's not what I want to do. They're separate, and I think they need to be separate. Acts chapter 6 is the model. Uh, there's an issue in the church, and the, uh, the apostles, they need someone to help them wait tables, serve tables to make sure that the widows eat. And so they uh, elect men filled with the Holy Spirit, men who are of good repute, men who can ensure that the apostles have a ministry of teaching and preaching. And that apostolic ministry of praying and preaching and teaching is carried on down through the elders. So I understand that there is a difference between the pastors and the deacons. However, my point to you tonight is instead of elevating one office over another, we need to ensure that we are elevating what lies beneath the office. And what lies beneath the office is the qualifications of godly spiritual leadership being overdoing. And so these qualities for our consideration this evening are those that relate to how the Holy Spirit bears fruit in a believer's life. A follower of God, to quote Elmore again, a follower of God will inevitably become a leader of people. And I remember the first time I preached this passage It was my first ever trial sermon at a church in North Carolina, Ransdale Chapel Baptist Church. I remember meeting with the six committee members and my wife, and they wanted to hear me preach. And so uh, I preached to just them, all six of them, one night, rainy night in North Carolina. It was just the committee in the church, and I I didn't have a tape that I could give them of me preaching. I didn't have an audio clip of me preaching. I didn't have any of that stuff. So they wanted to hear me preach. And so guess what? I chose to preach 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. And I titled the message that night, The Portrait of a Godly Overseer. I never preached it before. But I realized that I had the responsibility when I preached not to be self-serving, to seek a job. 
but to serve them. And the best way that I knew how to serve that committee that night was to take my only opportunity that I might have ever had before them to help them in their search process, to show them a portrait of a godly overseer. I preached my heart out that night. And they didn't call me for a second sermon, but that's okay. So when I come to this text, and I see that standard that I'm to live up to as a pastor, I'm overwhelmed. And I wonder, could I say what Paul says elsewhere as I look at these lists of qualifications? Could I say what Paul says elsewhere, brothers, sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us? Or could I say what the Bible says in Hebrews? Remember your leaders. Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. I encounter this text and I read it on a regular basis for my own self to remember the the standard that God has called me to as a pastor. And I ask myself often as I look at this list and I say, what qualities in me are worth imitating? Remember this. This is what gives me comfort. And hopefully it will give you comfort too. This same Paul that lays out this list of qualifications is the same Paul in 1 Timothy 1.15 that calls himself the chief of sinners. He's the same Paul. He lays out the list, but he also says he's the chief of sinners. You know what enables you to lay out a list and then say, I'm the chief of sinners? One word enables you to do that. Grace. And what's associated with grace? Forgiveness. Mercy. Praise God for mercy. Praise God that I'm not the standard of excellence. I'm not the head. Jesus is the head. So just ask yourself this question as you encounter the text, as it washes over you. What qualities, what qualities in you are worth imitating? And the response to that question, I believe, as we think about the response to that passage of what qualities in me are worth imitating, that's the response that I believe God intends for each pastor, each deacon, each leader to ask themselves. The only thing, and let me say this clear, the only thing in me that is worth imitating is my life of humbly following Jesus Christ. I say as Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Though I say differently than the, Paul, than the apostle says because I'm not an apostle. Follow me only in as much as I'm following Christ. And when I don't follow Christ, don't follow me. What a sober reminder of the great responsibility of pastoral leadership, of spiritual leadership. The Bible says in James 3, 1, that many shouldn't become teachers, knowing that as such, we shall incur a stricter judgment. You see, pastors are entrusted with the souls of people. Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders, submit to them. They are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. 
In other words, pastors, they have this particular responsibility that the deacons don't share. And that particular responsibility, because they're the teachers, we will incur a stricter judgment. The responsibility that we have as pastors is that we are shepherding souls. I'm responsible for your soul. You're not responsible for my soul. But I'm going to give an account in some mysterious way for how I lead you. 1 Peter 5, and this is the apostolic exhortation to the pastors. Listen to what he says. I exhort the elders among you. But interestingly, even though he's an apostle, he says, as a fellow elder, as a fellow elder, and a witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And then he says this, shepherd the flock of God. Shepherd the flock of the God that is amongst you. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Those qualities that are listed there are a sober reminder of the importance of our call and the responsibility therein for all believers, but especially the leaders. And let me say this. If you and I are going to make it safe to shore, we have to follow the leader. The leader is Jesus. And he gives his church servants who remind them of him. Follow the leader. They will always, those who are following the leader, will always lead others to Jesus. If I asked how many of you have ever heard of the star Kochab, anyone know that star? We have a nautical navigator in the back, Kochab. Probably not saying it right, but you may scratch your head. But all of us know the constellation that it's a part of. That star Kochab is part of the constellation, the Little Dipper. Within that Little Dipper, is another star, a pretty important one. It's called Polaris, or the North Star. The North Star is the brightest star in the Little Dipper constellation. And I just wonder, how many sailors have made it safe to shore by navigating by that fixed point in the sky, the North Star? How many others have shipwrecked because they missed navigating by that fixed point in the sky? We as leaders in the church, we all point to the fixed point, the brightest point, Jesus, our North Star. You see, Jesus is brighter than any of the brightest stars, and His splendor is magnificent. He outshines them all. He is always right, and He will never lead us wrong.
My prayer for First Baptist Newnan tonight, may God raise up more leaders who are followers, more leaders who courageously lead by serving. Father, help us. How can we do these things apart from your mercy and grace? Thank you for both. Help us to be good followers. Help us to follow the leader. Jesus, you are the leader. And in your name we pray. Amen. You're listening to Hearing is Believing. For more information or to contact us, please visit hearingisbelieving.org.